want to take your Bibles and turn over to the book of Micah. We're taking a little break from uh, our study of Genesis, which we've been in for quite a while, and we're kind of hitting up um, uh, some of our core values as a church, okay? And so uh, we're going to look at this passage that we uh, talk about a lot, Micah 6.8 in particular, and, uh, and that's where we're going to be this morning, okay? And so we're going to see God's heart for mercy and justice and humility and uh, how the Lord uh, loves these things and wants us to be about these things because he is about these things, okay? So why don't we all stand for the reading of God's holy word? Uh, we are just going to read the first, uh, let's see, eight verses of chapter six. First eight verses. All right, let's hear God's word together this morning. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up. Plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, O mountains, the Lord's accusations. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to you and also Aaron and Miriam. My people remember what Balak, king of Moab, counseled and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with a cast a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has showed you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. A word of the Lord. Thank you, God. Amen. You guys can take a seat. Well, this morning as we dive into this uh, pretty well-known passage, it's probably one of the most famous uh, verses of the Old Testament uh, up there along with things like Psalm 23. But we're going to see that when the Lord, out of his loving kindness, rebukes his people, we should, by His grace, respond in true repentance, okay? And so this uh, command here, Micah 6.8, is actually couched in a rebuke, a correction uh, of God's people. And so we're going to see how God calls us to repentance, but also what repentance actually looks like, right? What does repentance look like? It is to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. And so we want to study this in its context. It would be easy for us to pick this verse out that we would put on a coffee mug or put on a plaque or these kinds of things. We want to understand what's going on in Micah's day and why it was so important for that original audience before we understand for ourselves what it means for us. So first we're going to look at the Lord's charge against his people. The Lord's charge against his people. Micah is one of the minor prophets, okay? It's not because Micah is not that important versus, you know, the major prophets like uh, Isaiah or Jeremiah, but it's a smaller book, okay? Smaller books uh, are the minor prophets. 
He's a prophet around the same time of Isaiah and Hosea in the southern kingdom of Judah. All right, it's also called Israel. Remember, at this point in the time of the life of God's people, they had already split in half, okay? The kingdoms have divided. You have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, okay? So this is aimed at the southern kingdom. And this really wasn't a good time for God's people. God's people were running as far away from God and as fast as possible, all right? And so the opening verses of the book of Micah really make no bones about it. The Lord is a righteous judge. He has come as the righteous judge with a case against his people because of their great wickedness and their sin. Well, what kind of sin, you may ask? Well, listen closely as I, I kind of run through some of the sin that Israel was struggling with at this time. All right, so first, we got gross idolatry going on. Worship of carved images, okay? So we're already breaking the first few commandments here. Also, coveting of people's stuff and stealing it from the vulnerable and the weak. So you have the powerful oppressing the weak in the kingdom of God, in the people of God. Things like drunkenness going on or unjust leaders who, ironically, hate good and love evil. Right. So it's everything's been flipped upside down. The leaders of God's people are hating good and loving evil. Not only that, but the prophets, the prophets who were meant to speak on behalf of God were actually leading God's people away from God. They were speaking things that were false, things that were harmful, bad theology, as it were. Right. They were leading God's people away from him instead of to him. If that wasn't bad enough, you have judges, priests, and prophets who were working for the highest bidder. They were mercenaries, right? They were getting paid for their job. And so a prophet wants to prophesy. Who does he go to? He goes to the person that's going to give him the most money. And then he says something good for them to make them feel good, right? And so God's people were in a mess. It was a bad situation. We're not talking about the world. We're talking about God's people. This is what was going on in the church. Sin had infiltrated the church like a festering wound, and it stunk. Listen to what Micah 1.9 says. For her wound is incurable, and it has come to Judah. It has reached the gate of my people to Jerusalem. And so Micah's painting a picture of a festering wound that is uncurable. That's what the church was like. And so for God's people, it was a reckoning time. A time where God was calling his people to the mat, as it were, and say, we have to deal with this problem that's before us. It's like when kids who have been doing what they know is wrong and their dad's coming back home. Right. It's not going to be a good scenario. OK, the kids have been maybe getting away with something all day and they know their dad's coming back home and the dad is going to help give them an account of what's going on. He's going to bring justice. Right. Same thing here. It's time to give an account. But we also need to remember that Israel was in a special relationship with his with with God. What do I mean by that? We talk about it a lot, that God was in a covenant relationship with his people. That's a special relationship of promise, one where they are bound together. It's not just like a, a, an acquaintance relationship or even a friend relationship. It's a covenant relationship where God has pledged himself 
to his people and his people has pledged themselves to their God. Oftentimes throughout the Old Testament, we hear that phrase, I will be their God and they will be my people. Right. And part of that covenant relationship, there are expectations on the people of God. There are certain things that you must do by his grace, obviously, and by his help. But there are certain requirements that you must meet. And the people of God were not meeting those expectations. Listen to how God puts this back in Deuteronomy 10, verses 12 through 13. These requirements. He says this, And now, Israel, what does the Lord require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you today for your good. This is not something that's new, right? When it says he has told you or he has shown you, oh man, he's already been showing them for a long time. This is who I am. This is who you are. This is what our relationship looks like. This is what I expect of you. This is what I want to help you do. And remember, this is very important for us to remember, obedience to these things was not the way that they got into that covenant relationship, okay? We're not talking about a a works righteousness or salvation by works, no. But once they were in the covenant by grace through faith, the same way you and I are in the covenant, once they were there, they were called to act like it. They were called to live it out, right? So those who have been saved by grace through faith we are to act like it in our lives. Our lives are to be different. And the same thing is true of the people of God here in this day. In Micah's time, however, they had seemingly forgot about this and started to walk away from God. They started to act more like the world than acting like the church. They started to act more like their pre-Christian days instead of their Christian days, as it were, Right? So God in his goodness and out of his love for his people said there is a time for reckoning now. And so what does he do? He brings formal charges against his people. He says, you have broken the covenant and now it's time for us to talk about this problem. But why he does this is also equally important. It's because he wants his people restored. That's what discipline in the Bible is always about. It's about restoration. He wants his people restored back he loves them and so with that in mind he says this in the first two verses look at it with me hear what the lord says arise plead your case before the mountains and let your let the hills hear your voice hear you mountains the indictment of the lord and you enduring foundations of the earth for the lord has an indictment against his people and he will contend with Israel. These are serious words. The natural world around them are the witnesses, right? He's saying, oh, mountains and hills, those that have been there forever, that have seen the works of God's people day in and day out, now they're bringing witness against them. The plaintiff is bringing the case against his people who have broken the contract, and now the defendant God's people is called to come and to give an account for what they have done. This is the language of a court case. A court case, a covenant trial where God's people have broken the covenant and now it's time.
for them to pay in a way. But just in case this court language makes it seem too formal or too relational, I want us to look at verse 3. Look at verse 3. This is a powerful statement. He says, Oh, my people. Stop there for a moment. Oh, my people. What have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. This is not the heart of an angry neighbor who's suing his neighbor for maybe something petty like uh, uh, um, uh, they're not taking care of their lawn and it's messing up their lawn or whatever it may be. This is not that kind of attitude and heart. The heart here is like a father. And what do I mean by that? It's like a father who has a wayward daughter that's hooked on drugs that time and time again goes after those drugs no matter how many times it messes her life up. And the daughter who, or the, the husband, Sorry, the father who wants his daughter back. But he cannot sweep her sin underneath the rug. That third or fourth or fifth time where he has to let the police take her daughter, his daughter into custody so that the law can carry out its purpose to teach her the lesson that she has not learned so far. And what he wants all along, he wants his daughter back. The same thing is true here of the people of God and God himself. God is our Father. He says, oh my people. This is not some unrelational court case. He says, oh my people, I want you back. What you're doing is only going to destroy your life. Just like that dad who tells her daughter, if you keep going down this path, not only will you destroy your life, but everyone around you. They want them to stop and to be restored to that relationship with her dad. This is the cry of God as he calls out, Oh, my people. He wants them back. As I was thinking about this, I thought about the old song, How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure. Right? We could go through the whole words of that. How deep the Father's love for us. He could have easily said, Forget it. I'm done with these people. Let's carry out this just sentence and they'll be done. But he wants his people back. He will not sweep their sin underneath the rug. And just in case God's people try to blame it on God, he reminds them in verses 4 and 5 what he has done. He says, don't you remember what I've done? I delivered you from Egypt. I've delivered you from this person and from that person. In this situation, I've protected you. I've provided for you. There's no way that you can blame me for this distance. He's not the one that moved away. It was them. God's not the one on trial here. It's actually God's people. But not only does God remind them of who he is and what he's done, but he also reminds them who they are and what they are to do as a part of that covenant relationship, which brings us to our second point here, the Lord's command to his wayward people. So when we come back to verses 6 to 8, now Micah is back speaking again. And Micah is speaking on behalf of Israel. He asks multiple questions here on the issue of what is acceptable worship. Will God be pleased if I bring uh, these thousands of uh, offerings of oil or the best of the best of these rams or this and that? Is God pleased with these things? And it's almost a, a sarcastic asking of questions where the reader is supposed to say, no, 
not bringing these things. Not that these things are bad in and of themselves, because when we look through the Old Testament, we see God calls his people to bring these things to him, right? And to make these offerings. But there was one problem that they had. The problem was that they were bringing these offerings without their heart. Their heart was far from the Lord, right? They were just doing an outward service of worship, and they thought that that was enough. And the heart was actually far from God. It was meaningless. It was a repetitive action that didn't please God. Listen to what, how one commentator put it. They were willing to make any sacrifice except for living righteous lives. They were willing to make any sacrifice except for living righteous lives. Yeah, God, I'll give you my ram. I'll give you my first fruits of my crops. I'll give you this and that as long as I don't have to give you my life, my heart, my worship, what I'm really about, the best of me. They were an outward religion, right? And this has been a problem all throughout time. When we fast forward to the New Testament, we have a whole group of people that have this problem. They're called the what? Pharisees, right? The Pharisees had this problem, an outward religion, as if obeying these certain things would actually please God and earn God's favor. But in reality, their heart was as far away from, them as, as, uh, from God as possible. There was a problem with God's people. We do the same thing today. If we, we think that maybe if we go to church enough or if we give enough money or if we do enough things volunteering at a church, then, you know, we're pretty good from God. We're, we're good with God. And yet our hearts are far from him. When we talk about what we really love, what we really spend our time and our money and our talents on, it has nothing to do with the Lord. It's just an outward exercise that seems to bypass the most important parts of ourselves, our heart. But the funny thing about our outward religion is, is that it doesn't trick God, right? We think that it tricks God, but it actually doesn't trick God. He knows all along where our heart is, right? And somehow we trick ourselves into thinking that we can trick God, and we keep on living that outwardly religious life when our hearts are far from God. See, we have to realize that eventually our actions are going to follow our heart. Let me say that again. Our actions will eventually follow our heart. What is most important inside of us will produce itself in our actions, will flesh itself out in our lives. And eventually you start doing the things like Israel did. Maybe for us today, it's, it's we're starting to not listen to our parents. We're starting to get high and experiment with all different types of drugs. We're, we're going sleeping around and we're trying to live a double life where we are going to church and we're doing all the right things, but then behind the doors, behind the scenes, our life looks more like the world. Our hearts are far from God, even though we're doing all the right things, just like Israel. But as we get to the end of verse 7, it's kind of begging the question, well, what does God want? What does God require? If he doesn't require these things, or not in that way, what does God want from us? Right? We ask that question all the time. God, what do you want from me and for my life? And that's where this famous verse comes out. Let's read it. I'll read it again for us. Verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness 
and to walk humbly with our God. See, God's people can't claim ignorance. We already said that. God had been telling them all along throughout their history, this is who you are. This is who I am. This is what I require of you. This is what your life as a Christian should look like. And so we're going to spend the remainder of our time just looking at these three commands to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. The first one, do justice. What is justice? Well, justice is the administering of fairness and equity according to God's righteous standard, right? Justice is what is true and what is right, not according to the world, right, and their various standards, but according to God and to his standards. It's exactly the opposite of what God's people were doing in the book of Micah, right? In the book of Micah, injustice was rampant. You have rich people who are abusing and oppressing poor people. You have leaders who are abusing their position, right? God-given position and abusing the people that they are in leadership over. It took many forms, right? Favoritism, partiality to the highest bidder. These are all forms of injustice in Micah's day. And don't think that the church today is any better. We have racial, economic, educational injustice, and, and we could go on and on and on at the, the injustices that the church struggles with today. But justice is a topic that's close to God's heart. Why? Because he is a God who is perfectly just. Our God is perfectly righteous, perfectly just. There is no injustice in him. And as those who are made in his image, we are to be just, right? We are to be righteous in the way that we deal with things. Now, time doesn't allow us to survey justice throughout the Bible. Maybe we'll get to that this week a little bit more. But there's one particular audience that God cares about particularly as he talks about the topic of justice, okay? He is particularly concerned that justice be given to those that the world denies it to the most. So God cares about giving justice to everyone, but particularly when we see justice in the Bible, it's for those that the world denies justice to the most. Who are they? The poor, the marginalized, the oppressed, the weak, the orphan, the widow, the outcast. Tim Keller in his book, Generous Justice, says today this would be expanded to include the refugee, the migrant worker, the homeless, and many single parents and elderly people. He goes on to say that the justice, justness of a society, according to the Bible, is evaluated by how it treats these groups. Any neglect shown to these, uh, the needs of these members is not merely a lack of mercy or charity, but a violation of justice. God loves and defends those with the least economic and social power, and so should we. This is what it means to do justice. So in this call to do justice, God's call is that we would do justice to everyone in every situation, but in particular to those who need it the most, those who don't have a voice or don't have money to have the voice or don't have power to have the voice. God calls us to stand up and care for justice. And one of my questions for us is, do we value justice in this way? It's something close to God's heart, 
But when you really take a look at your own heart, is it something that you value? Something that you put time and effort towards? Or do we only care about justice when it affects us? And that's a hard question, right? It's like when, when ju- injustice is affecting other people, it's like, okay, it's not hurting me. But then when it hurts me, I start, all of a sudden start to care. Listen to this quote from an unbeliever, but yet it's still powerful. Benjamin Franklin. Justice will not be served until those who are unaffected are as outraged as those who are. Justice will not be served until those who are unaffected are as outraged as those who are. See, if we're God's people, we should care about injustice even when it concerns, or especially when it concerns somebody else and not just ourselves. That's what it means to do justice. Well, let's move on to the second one, to love mercy or to love kindness. The second command really gets at the heart of the matter, or more accurately, a matter of the heart. Here we're not just called to do something, but to love something. All right, that's a big difference there, right? I can do something all day long, but then you call me to love it, it makes it even harder, okay? Because love is not just a warm and fuzzy feeling or affection in the Bible. It's something much deeper, right? The heart, where love comes from, is the control center of our lives. And so it is a commitment, an action of the heart. And what we are to love is mercy or kindness to one another. And now this word kindness is a very important word throughout the Bible. It's more than what we usually think about when we hear about kindness from one person to another. There really here is an element of commitment to relationship. Okay, so it's kindness, but in the context of relationship. Listen to this quote here. It refers to relationship of being bound together, be it God to man or man to man. It establishes community. It refers to the goodwill, which aims at shared community. And so this is getting back to that whole idea of being in a covenant relationship with God, where we are bound to God but we're also bound to one another, right? We're brothers and sisters in the Lord. We have a special bond. That's why we call each other brothers and sisters, right? We're not blood related, but we are related through the bond of Christ. And therefore, when kindness is to be expressed, it has that relational commitment, that element of you and me together showing kindness to one another, especially in the household of God. But in Micah's day, God's people weren't acting very kind, right? They were actually hating on each other, right? They didn't love each other very well. They were actually looking out for themselves and only looking out for number one. And yet in his kindness, God rebuked them, right? You guys remember the New Testament was when it says God's kindness is meant to lead us to what? Repentance, right? God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance, and so what's, what's interesting here is that God showed us this kindness first. And he continues to show us this type of kindness so that we may show others, right? The way that we can love kindness or love mercy is because God has shown us that exact same kindness and mercy and continues to, even though we spit in his face, face and run the other way and try to hide things from him and do all the sorts of things that Micah, Micah's time was doing. 
He shows us that kind of kindness. When his people go off that narrow path and now the shepherd has to go and find that one, he has to leave the 99 and go after that wayward one, that's the kind of kindness that God has shown to us that we show to one another. And particularly here, it is with, yes, all of mankind, but especially brothers and sisters in the Lord. Those who have been shown that kindness, those who have experienced God's kindness and grace, that we would now go and show it. So it's not the kind of kindness that only is kind to people that are kind to you. Okay, right? This is a lesson that parents teach their kids all the time. Right? Don't repay evil for evil. Right? The one kid punches another kid, and it's like, okay, what do I got to do? I'm going to go back and punch that person. Why did you punch them? Well, because they punched me, right? And you try to get them to understand, no, we're not repaying evil for evil. You repay kindness, right? Kindness. It's not dependent upon if you're shown kindness yourself. So how are we doing in that kind of showing kindness? When someone looks at your life, would they say that you are a kind person? the way that God has shown kindness to you. Now, this last one should really be a no-brainer, right? Walk humbly with God. Humility is a chief attribute of the Christian life, right? If we were to survey all the time uh, that, that the Bible talks about humility, we would be here a very long time, right? But humility is a very important attribute of a Christian life. And the opposite, pride, is one of the greatest sins that we could have. Humility looks at the needs of others, not just ourself. Humility compares itself to the one perfect standard, not imperfect standards of other people, right? A lot of times when we think about how we're doing, we compare ourselves to the person that's next to us that may be a little bit worse than us, right? But humility looks at the one perfect example and says, I'm always falling short. I always have room to grow. Humility exalts God and not man. See, there's no better example of humility in the Bible than who? Jesus, right? Sunday school answer, okay? Jesus, there's no better example of humility. And Paul points this out in Philippians 2. Listen here. Let each of you look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. The true example of humility is Christ himself. He humbled himself to come and to rescue wayward people like you and me. He took the form of a servant. Think about how this Christ-like humility would have stopped the sins of Micah's day. If they were walking in humility, they would not have been eyeing the praise and the acceptance of man. They would not want to be lining their pockets for the gain of the role that God had given them. If they were walking in this Christ-like humility, they would have realized that being impartial and going to the highest bidder was absolutely heinous in the eyes of God and hurting the poor, and the marginalized. They would have been thinking about someone other than themselves. But also think about how Christ-like humility would stop God's people from sinning in our day, right? 
Those examples are endless, right? If we were practicing Christ-like humility, how it would stop us dead in our tracks. Maybe here are a few examples. If we were walking with God in Christ-like humility, maybe we won't be so quick to hoard our freedoms and our privileges and our wealth from the refugee, the migrant worker, those that are looking for a livable wage or a better life. Maybe if we were walking in that Christ-like humility, we would be quick to think about other, others' needs and not our own. We would be quick to be a servant in whatever scenario that God had put us in. We would take the role of a learner in a new place, in a new community like you will this week, instead of the one who has all the answers. You would take the role of a servant before you take the role of a leader. See, humility, Christ-like humility, changes everything for you and for me. It is one of the chief attributes of what a Christian is to be and how they are to live their life. See, as we come to a close, I want to fix our eyes particularly on Christ. And the reason being is that in a passage that's a heavy do passage or a heavy passage that's calling us to do certain things, and on top of that, a passage that is, like I said, kind of couched in a rebuke or a correction, we can kind of tend to err on one or two extremes. Let me tell you what I mean here. On the one hand, some of us will err on despair. We will look at these commands and say, we can never possibly live up to this. What's the point, right? I'm never going to do justice. I'm never going to love kindness or walk in humility the way that God really wants me to. So what's the point of even trying? For those, I think the ending words of the book of Micah are so powerful. Listen to these words. We use them as an assurance of pardon when we confess our sins before the Lord. Here's 7, 18 through 20. It says this, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity, passing over transgressions for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot and you will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you've sworn to our fathers in the days of old. We need to hear those words if we're in that camp. Because if you're in that camp, you rightly see that you are going to struggle obeying these commands. You're rightly seeing that you will never, ever do this perfectly on this side of heaven. And you also rightly see that you well deserve whatever discipline or punishment comes from not living up to these things. But this group also does one thing. They don't set their eyes on the Lord and His forgiveness and the Lord and His help. And that's why we need the gospel. That's why we need Christ. We need to see that His steadfast love and His steadfast kindness is shown to people like you and me. And so that we're tempted to despair or we're tempted to look within and say, why, even tr why not even try? We can look to Christ and to say all of our sins were cast into the depths of the sea. And he now lives within us through the Holy Spirit and he is helping us to day by day live more and more like this. That group of people in here needs to hear that message. But there's also another group of people on the other end of the spectrum. And what do I mean by that? The other end of the spectrum is the Pharisee. 
the one who has tended to be more prideful or self-arrogant to say, yeah, you know what, I think I'm doing pretty good. I think when I look at this list, I'm, yeah, I'm doing that one, and yeah, I'm, I'm doing that one, and pretty good here. What, what is happening here with this group? Not only is it the opposite of humility, but it's actually dead wrong, right? The Pharisee sets the bar too low, right? The, the Pharisee sets that bar actually lower so they can actually try to attain it and look good before men. That may be your tendency. This group of people needs to know that only through the power of Christ and the Holy Spirit can we even begin to obey these things and that our sin is way worse than we actually think it is. That you need that forgiveness and that, 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 uh, um, that he talked about there at the end of chapter 7. We need that forgiveness through Christ, right? And so whether you're on the side of a Pharisee or you're on the side of one that goes towards self-despair you know, and self-discouragement, saying that you never can live up to this, that's why we end up at the gospel. That's why Micah puts our hearts and minds on the truth of the gospel at the end of his book. But the call here remains the same. The call for Christians to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God is still the call just like it was for the people of God in Micah's day. Right? The people in Micah's day, they were in a messed up situation. They had their eyes somewhere else than being fixed on Jesus. The same thing happens for us today. We take our eyes off the Lord and we need that correction. We need that rebuke, right? Remember, that rebuke and that correction is out of a fatherly love to get his child back. He wants you. He wants that close relationship for you to walk with him. Uh, that, that song that we sing all the time, Walk With Me, Lord. He wants you to walk with him in that close abiding walk of living a life of justice and mercy and humility. And he is here to help you and me in the midst of our struggle and in the midst of not living up to this and needing Jesus. So I pray that in this passage here, this is a, a well-known passage for us. We talk about this. We have it on our t-shirts that you guys would have gotten just a better glimpse of what was going on here in the book of Micah and how it applies to us and our day. That call is still the same for you and me. And I, our prayer this week is that you guys would be living that out, right? And that you guys would be preaching the gospel to yourselves and living in Christ and walking through his power as you go about doing justice, loving mercy, and walking with your God. Okay? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, that you are so, so patient with us. God, I love that phrase in verse 3 here that says, Oh, my people. God, so much is wrapped up in that one little phrase about how you care for us, how you love us, how you want us back, how you discipline us, even as a means to bring us back to right relationship with you. And so, Father, I pray that wherever we are this morning, you know our hearts, you know our struggles. Nothing can be hidden from you, from the youngest people in our church to the oldest. Nothing can be hidden. And so I pray for us to be honest with you, that you would help us to cry out to you, and Lord, that you would help us to, to experience the healing of Christ, the healing of the gospel uh, today afresh and anew. We love you, Lord, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.